1: What role do theories of race play in science? For years, we thought that the eugenic ideas about race had fallen out of fashion, but recently they seem to be making a bit of a comeback. In today's podcast, Angela Saini talks to me about why this is happening. She's speaking to us from New York, so excuse the sound of real genuine Manhattan traffic or the occasional transatlantic internet wobble. Welcome to Future Imperfect. So, Angela, welcome to the podcast. Could you tell our listeners about yourself?
2: Well, I am a science journalist and author, and I write about a very provocative topics, and that's not deliberate, that's just the direction my career has gone. So, my last two books looked at gender and race, respectively, and essentially what science gets wrong, why it gets things wrong, myths and orthodoxies that get created within academia and intellectual communities, and how they seem to persist over time even when we know that these ideas are wrong and the damage that they do to our sense of self and the way that we think about each other.
1: Right so I can tell this is probably going to we're probably going to delve into <laughs> some interesting areas.
2: Oh. Eugenics
1: was something but what's the name of your latest book by the way?
2: Um, my most recent published book is Superior, The Return of Race Science but the book I'm working on at the moment is looking at the origins of patriarchy. I'm only about 3 quarters of the way into that and it won't be out for at least another year. But it touches on stuff I've looked at before and it's <laughs> maybe that's for another time.
1: <laughs> well, well, maybe or maybe this could be an exceptionally long podcast. <laughs> so do you want to go back to the eugenics side of things a little bit because I have a bit of a background in biology. So I understand evolutionary biology. I understand that kind of component of it. So feel free to be quite technical there. But it would be lovely to start with things that you think people get very wrong, for example.
2: Well, um, coincidentally, at this moment that we're speaking, at the end of this week, there's going to be a big eugenics conference. So I live in New York now. I just moved here three weeks ago, but it's between the UK and the US because 100 years ago, there was a huge international eugenics conference that brought in people from all over the political spectrum particularly in the UK and the US, which were hearts of eugenics research at that time, um, to discuss the possibilities of introducing eugenic policies. And I think one of the things that we forget, and I have to stress, this conference that's happening this week is not attempting to do that. What it's doing is reflecting on these histories and how fraught they were and trying to make sure that we don't fall into those same traps again. But I think one thing we forget when we associate eugenics most commonly with the Nazis and the Holocaust and the program of racial hygiene is that in its time at the beginning of the 20th century, this is a very popular school of thought. This was an ideology that drew in people from all kinds of backgrounds, men and women, feminists. There were a number of prominent feminists who were, or people that we think of as feminists now who are very much into eugenics, people on the left, socialists, people like Beveridge, the Fabians, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, who set up the LSC, who were really drawn to the idea that we could improve the human race by selectively encouraging certain people to have babies and discouraging other so-called less desirable people from having babies. And there was a real sense that this was a progressive thing to do.
1: It's interesting because it does draw comparisons with stock breeding, for example, in, in animals. This is done in... Dogs and horses and budgerigars. guards, and people very much take steps to breed a better or not better. Well, yeah, they would call it better a specific trait
2: yeah.
1: or a specific set of traits. So eugenics is about looking at that at one level, but of course, it forgets a whole bunch of different things, I would imagine. Obviously, I think that's wrong, but why did people think it was right? Were they just trying to make sort of the equivalent of superhumans? Is that the thinking behind it? They can better the human race.
0: Well,
2: the logic is similar to what you describe in stock breeding, which is um, so Francis Galton was one of these, was the person who kind of developed this idea. He was a cousin of Darwin. And at the end of the 19th century, he wrote about the possibility of creating brilliant humans, geniuses, a galaxy of geniuses by encouraging people with beneficial and what he thought of as heavily genetic traits like intelligence or beauty and assuming that these traits were automatically passed down through generations. Now there's lots of problems with this. Number one is when you're breeding animals you're breeding for one specific thing you know a cow that's particularly fat or produces a lot of milk or a dog that is particularly loyal or has a particular type of coat you're not breeding in a rounded way for a kind of general person who has lots of different beneficial qualities. And also when you're breeding animals, you know, you can you can destroy the ones that you don't like. You can make mistakes and keep going yes. over generations. That is not something, obviously, you could ethically do when it comes to humans. So there are kind of practical issues, if you want to think about it in a practical way with this. Not least, I think, when it comes to humans, many of the traits that we think of. And again, this is something I think we need to interrogate even in the present. Lots of things that we think of as beneficial qualities are very complex and have a genetic component, but also have a large environmental component and aren't always one-to-one heritable. So they may be highly heritable, but it doesn't necessarily mean that just because you have a parent who is a brilliant pianist, say, that their kid will be a brilliant pianist. We know that from our own experience. We know that those rare geniuses, actually emerge from absolutely anywhere. It's actually more likely that a genius child, as we designate it, genius, will come from two quite average intelligence parents, because that is where most people are. And that kind of accident of nature is more likely to emerge from the large bulk of the general population than from a minority of people. So there are lots of reasons why it wouldn't work. But of course, What we're still interrogating now is the morals of this and why people believed and bought into this idea that this could be a good thing to do.
1: So I suppose you could breed for tall people. If you were an alien and you wanted to breed tall people, you theoretically, I would imagine that height is genetically linked, but also if you're not fed properly, you can't reach your genetic height. So even something as arguably linear as height is related to environment as well, I believe. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong there. Yeah, Yeah. it is
2: linked to diet and lots of other things. An easy way to improve the likelihood that your child will be taller would be to just feed them very well. (laughs) That's the than genetically modifying them. Um, And certainly in countries in which people have not always had enough to eat, when they do, when families do, then
1: suddenly you see their children are much taller. Okay, that's really interesting. So Intelligence is also really hard to assess in many ways, isn't it? There are lots of attempts to assess cleverness and things like Mensa and IQ tests. And they're all, as far as I understand it, they're all fraught with problems.
2: Yeah. And we have to remember also that intelligence testing emerged out of the eugenics movement. The whole idea of intelligence testing came from this notion that if we are going to encourage certain people to have babies and others not, then we have to be able to know what people's intelligences are, who are the mentally feeble, as they were called at the time, and who are the brightest. And that's where IQ testing came in. The problem with it, of course, is that, number one, what is intelligence? How do you measure it? It's a very culturally loaded idea. Mm. Is it just the ability to do math problems very quickly in your head? Is it about memory? Or is it more complex than that? You know, is it about creativity and analytics and all these other things? So IQ tests are always limited and they are also culturally biased. So if you have a certain educational training, you'll be primed to answer questions more easily. And in fact, that's one reason we suspect that IQ results have gone up over time. It's not that generations are getting smarter. It's just that the environments and the educational environments that we're in make it easier for us to take these tests that we become better at taking these tests over time. So this is a well-identified phenomenon that was done by an intelligence researcher, James Flynn, who recently passed away, that showed that in pretty much everywhere in the world, IQ levels have gone up over time.
1: I remember reading an article, I think it was a New Scientist, about giving an IQ test to one of those gorillas that was able to communicate and answer questions. I can't remember her name, I wish I could, but she gave answers to questions like, what would you like to eat? And she said, you know, leaves, and where would you like to sleep in a tree or a bed? And of course, a bed was wrong for her because she preferred to sleep in a tree in her nest. So she said that naturally, and it was marked as wrong. And therefore, you know, we're not even talking to do with society there. We're talking cross species, yeah. <laughs> different intelligence levels and, and ways of doing it. Also, you have to think of the environment something's in. So a squirrel is very good at maneuvering around a tree and can think in three dimensions where a dog, is used to working in a plane, in a flat plane. And so we'll get stuck in ways that squirrels won't. It doesn't mean a dog is less intelligent than a squirrel. It means it's differently intelligent. And as you said, the trouble with intelligence is it covers a huge range of human components. I mean, emotional intelligence. Some people can be very mathematically intelligent, but can be very poor in emotional. They're often coupled with people on various spectrums. Again, it's an area I'm not particularly familiar with, but I believe that people offer these things come in couples. So actually selecting for intelligence would be impossible.
2: You're right that this genius, when we recognise it in people, is often a quite narrow kind of creative genius, you know, that you're a brilliant musician or a brilliant writer or in some specific field. That doesn't mean you necessarily have enormous skills in everything else as well, but we think about it in this monolithic way that once you're intelligent, you're good at everything, which is very rarely the case. You know, how many people do you know who are actually like that. I don't like the idea of intelligence as a way to measure this amorphous quantity, but what do you do in a society that places so much value and utility on how intelligent you
1: are? Mm. It's an interesting one. I remember speaking to certain specialists and professors of maybe animal behaviour, and you're having a chat with them over dinner, and then you ask them something about politics. And of course, they're no more qualified by their expertise in genetics to talk about politics than anybody is but because they have a sort of aura of professiveness you kind of (laughs) assume that their their knowledge base encompasses everything so whatever they talk about is wise and sensible (laughs) and and in my experience as I've got older that's often the opposite. (laughs)
2: Absolutely same you know I interview academics pretty much all day long and I'm often stunned at how quick many are to talk about fields way outside their areas of expertise and how entitled they feel to do Mm. that, often with not a huge degree of understanding or humility about what they may not know. Um, But I think that is partly a product of the way that we treat clever people in society, Mm. that we elevate them and we think of them as somehow supernaturally different from everybody else, when in fact these qualities that we value in people and these abilities to think in different ways manifest in very complex ways in everyone. My mum, for instance, did not go as far in her higher education as my dad did, but she's a lovely poet and she, you know, she has so many other strings to her bow that are beautiful and valuable and important. Whereas my dad is kind of seen as the more educated one because he did his masters and he's really good at maths and things like that. And I don't think that's a correct way to think about people.
1: I mean, human beings do that with other areas, don't they? You see rich people or famous people and you assume that what they say about something <laughs> yeah. is somehow, well, it's easy to assume that somehow what they say is more important than somebody who is not rich or famous. And of course, they're totally unlinked and totally irrelevant yet the media likes to talk to people because of who they are and they then ask them questions which quite frankly if they had a certain level of humility they should say I don't know I don't know nothing about that subject but it's going to make a it's going to make a fairly lousy interview and it's going to make a really boring question time actually it might be quite refreshing I yeah. love it
2: people did that I mean I've had occasions in my life where I've asked for directions and someone has given me the wrong directions because they would rather say something than admit that they don't know the way um and I think there should be absolutely no shame in number one admitting what you don't know and number two admitting that you're changing your mind as you grow older Mm -hmm. I've changed my mind on lots of things and the more I read the more my views and opinions on things change I certainly don't have like a fixed vision of the world that is not going to alter. I hope it alters because it should.
1: Mm. It's a bit of a danger of algorithms as well, isn't it, though, when you're looking online for things and the computer says, oh, you like this, therefore you'll probably like that as well. We, we end up fighting with this sort of knowledge bubbles and, and the focus in social media, famously the conversation around social media for basically pushing people to engage with things that are in that area and then a little bit more extreme and in that area and a little bit more extreme. And that slow walk can take people into really dark places, really difficult places mentally, as we are witnessing today in the news. So algorithms designed to engage people with social media are perhaps pandering to that. So how do we teach people that saying they don't know something <laughs> is, is it an acceptable answer?
2: It's tough. So one of the other hats that I wear is I run a group. We're quite a low radar group at the Royal Institution called Challenging Pseudoscience. And we're journalists, editors, academics. Some of us work at social media companies like Facebook and Twitter. And we have a Facebook third-party fact-checker actually in our group. But this is one of the problems we grapple with is one of the vehicles for misinformation and disinformation online is these rabbit holes that people fall into because of the way these platforms are designed. They push you towards certain narrow niche interests and certain groups of people who share your narrow niche interests. And before you know it, You get sucked into a world that can hold some quite weird conspiracy theories or views, but you can't see a way out because before you know it, everyone agrees with you in that filter bubble that you're in. And drawing people out of that and also recognising that you're in it is incredibly difficult. And it can happen to any one of us. It's not as though there's a type that gets drawn to it. It can happen to anybody. And it's almost like de radicalization So one of the people in our group works in counter-extremism. He's worked with governments all over the world trying to de-radicalise religious extremists. And that process is a one-to-one psychological process that can take years depending on how deeply someone has entered into that rabbit hole. And I think the process around pseudoscientific conspiracy theories, so here I'm talking about flat earthers or climate change deniers, things like that, are almost the same, that you, for some reason fall down into this rabbit hole find a community a very self-contained community that has its own internal logic and even very reasonable people can fall into these communities and find it impossible to get out
1: and people's brains are very good at rationalizing away the impossible I mean remember I was watching a video I've watched quite a lot of YouTube videos I've got my own YouTube (laughs) channel as well but I was watching a flat earther filming the sunset as the sun was going down below the horizon saying the sun's not actually setting the sun's up there in the sky he was pointing higher up in the sky and he's saying it's something to do with refraction you know, I'm not quite sure, but it's clear that the sun is higher in the sky than it looks. And I'm thinking you're actually filming your own <laughs> sunset and you're yeah. denying what you can see that the sun is clearly going down it's not getting smaller it's clearly going below the horizon and eventually went out. And I just thought the human brain is an extraordinary thing, because they had convinced themselves that what they were seeing was actually incorrect. Mm. And so the human brain is very capable of deceiving us. And all these cognitive biases that I'm familiar with and we're all prone to, they're quite difficult to fight against sometimes, aren't they?
2: They are. And I mean, we're all victim of that in smaller and bigger ways. To be raised in a society is to be raised with its particular way of looking at the world. And that becomes your way of looking at the world. And when that becomes challenged, we resist it and we look for any evidence that will stop us from having to change our minds. Changing your mind, I think, is one of the hardest things to do Mm. as a human being. I know that myself, in the books that I write, I've had my mind changed in those processes. I've started with a certain set of assumptions and ended very differently and had to question myself. You know, Then actually, how do I think about myself as a result of what I now know? How can I realign my place in the world? Based on what
1: I've learned. It's actually embarrassing as well for yourself. You feel it's like I've put so much effort into this club, mm. and now I've realized this club is actually completely wrong. And I can do one of two things I can say I don't want to be part of this club anymore and mm. heal or change or modify how I think of the world, or I can double down and deny the facts. I suppose it's like giving up drugs as well, isn't it? People say one of the things you've got to do is get them out of the environment that got mm. them into the drugs in the first place. And in a way, It's very parallel to people who are radicalised or indoctrinated or whatever it might be. You've got to try and extract them from that environment. It's very difficult to do sometimes.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. But, you know, I've come to the point now because I think all of us have our own delusions in some way. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing if it's not self-destructive or destructive to other people. If it gives you comfort, if it makes you feel better, if it gives you a place in the world and it gives you a community and it's not harming anyone, it's fine, you know. We all have to find our particular way of surviving and making the world work for us. And if it means holding on to a few harmless delusions, then do it. Because we all have them. You know, we all have our certain commitments to ways of doing things which another society or another time might think of as completely irrational. The problem is where, you know, it starts to harm other people. Mm. And I think that's where this issue of trying to draw people out of them. And it's not about making people see sense, because I think that can be quite patronising, condescending. It's about getting people to see the same facts, but from a different perspective and holding their hand through it and trying to understand the emotion and psychology behind why they would choose a particular set of facts over another one.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. So the eugenics movement, uh, getting back to that whole thing, did it start out benign or has it always been kind of actually behind the facade? It's tied up with racism and empire and that kind of thing. Or was there a kind of more naive side to it where people were genuinely trying to make better people? We want better for our children and maybe they thought that was a way of doing it?
2: Oh, I don't know, because benign is relative. You know, I think Mm. the progressives who latched onto eugenics early on would have thought this is a brilliant solution to poverty, for instance. The early British eugenics movement was very much about class. They believed that there was at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum what they sometimes termed the residuum, like a small strata of people who were poor intergenerationally because they would always be poor because they were genetically inferior. You know, they were less intelligent, criminally inclined. They had a host of genetic problems. That was the belief. And that if we could just eradicate those people somehow, then the average would go up. And the race, when they talked about race, they meant the British race or, you know, the white race. They weren't really thinking about other races and their implications. They were thinking within our group, how can we improve our group so that we as a society are more productive you know when we go to war that we will be more likely to win wars that we will be the dominant society and I think to the people who latched onto it then they would have thought that this is great but number one it didn't really work and it wasn't instituted in that same way although there were many sterilizations all over the world not in Britain so it never came into policy in Britain but in other countries it did including the US where I am now Um,
1: They had forcible sterilisation. Yeah,
2: they had forcible sterilisations in many countries all over the world. Mm. And even into recent history. So there are people alive today who were forcibly sterilised
1: under kind of eugenic policies. Gosh, so it's still very much with us. The the legacy of that is absolutely still here. Yes,
2: and I mean, in an era of gene editing, there is also this fear that will we selectively eliminate people who are likely to have certain... Genetically inherited diseases, you know, and this is where it becomes a very grey area because we already, you know, when I was pregnant with my son, I was tested, as all women are in the UK, routinely for Down syndrome. What well, is his likelihood of having Down syndrome? And I knew at the time that if he had tested positive for Downs, I probably would have had an abortion. And I think many women do make that choice. There are many women who very bravely don't make that choice who say, "I'm going to have the child. I'm going to look after it." And I absolutely applaud. The kind of commitment as mm-hmm. a parent to be able to do that. But many of us are not that brave. And we have to ask ourselves, and why do we feel it's appropriate to do that? Do we feel that it is such a sacrifice, not only on the part of the parent, but also on the child to have these babies? You know, that's a live issue that we are still grappling with because it does veer on the eugenic in a way. But you could also argue if you eliminate a genetic disease from someone by giving them gene therapy, is that also eugenics? Are you also interfering in their genes somehow in treating them? So it becomes more complex than we imagine. It's not the clear-cut issue that we think it is.
1: Nothing ever is in life, is it, when it involves human beings? When people say there's either the right or the wrong, it's like, well, I can find a condition that doesn't satisfy either of them. But um, I also suppose it depends on your philosophy of life as well, because I imagine there are some people who don't want medical intervention, for example, because Mm -hmm. they don't think it's ethical their particular belief system will support them. And we're against this with COVID and vaccinations. There are certain people that say their chosen religion will protect them. The evidence is clear that it won't, but they believe it. And as you say, that belief gives them strength, but it also impacts on people that can't get vaccinated that would like to. I mean, so this conference that's going on, can you explain that a bit more? Because it's sort of elevated out of eugenics in a way, isn't it? Yeah,
2: it's couched as an anti-centennial. So it's essentially saying in what ways do we retain some of those ideas from eugenics and how can we move beyond it? So they've got a wonderful programme. I was not one of the organisers, but I'm going to be one of the speakers. They've got a wonderful programme of people who are directly impacted by these issues whether because of race and ethnicity or because of disability, particularly with disability, who are still having to deal with this idea of what does it mean to be perfect? You know, Mm -hmm. why do we demand perfection of people in society? And this is another reason I feel such discomfort sometimes with social media, is that we're always commanded to be the best possible versions of ourselves. And I sometimes wonder to myself, why are we not enough as we are? And who are we being better for?
1: Well, yeah, there is that. And people fake, you know, I, I didn't realize until well, relatively recently that people retouch photos and put photos <laughs> on. And, and 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 of course, it's stupid. I should have assumed that would yeah. be the case as soon as it's possible, but it never really occurred to me. Because I tend to use social media as a sort of personal diary. And if people don't like it, well, stuff them. Stop following me then. You know, it's it's almost a it's almost an aid memoir for me. I did this today, or Here's one, of, here's one of my horses, or here's one of my swords, or i met this person. But for many people, it's tied up with their idea of self-identity in an incredible way these days.
2: Yeah, you know, there mm. are a number of studies done looking at how sense of self among teenagers is impacted by being on social media. I'm so grateful that social media didn't exist when I was at school, because it really does give you a warped perception, number one, of how other people are and how you are in relation to those other people. And you're constantly expected to compare yourself and attract other people's approval on some of these platforms. And it can, I think, create, as I said, this kind of negative spiral that makes you believe that you can always be better and that you should be better.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
1: I remember reading about this phenomenon of people pathologically taking too many selfies. And (laughs) I was fascinated by the number because I was thinking somebody takes six or seven photographs of themselves in a day. That sounds pretty egotistical to me, but apparently that's woefully normal, (laughs) Um, uh, which always surprises me because I get photographed quite a bit, but I don't really Mm -hmm. like photographing myself. It just seems slightly wrong. But apparently some people, to get into the pathologies of too many selfies... You've got to be taking hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of photographs of yourself, Mm -hmm. which is extraordinary. What do they do with their time?
2: Yeah, it is weird. I remember my son. So I tend not to take selfies because like you, I get my picture taken a lot and I don't like having my picture taken at all by anybody, (laughs) least of all myself. But my son was probably around four or five when he tried to take a selfie with one of our phones I mean, we're so used to seeing it. I cannot walk down the street in Manhattan now without seeing someone taking a selfie. It's just normal. It's just a
1: thing, isn't it? It's a thing everybody does, and they go to a beautiful place. The way I used to do it was to take a photograph of the beautiful place. <laughs> and now what people have to do is insert themselves into the beautiful place <laughs> and, and take a photo at arm's length. And even the form factor of things like phones is designed around taking selfies now. An extraordinary change, and it's happened so quickly.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just my age. You know, (laughs) you get older and you resent everything that's happening that young people are doing. But then I do also wonder if what we're seeing online is a very small slice of everyday people. And most everyday people are just living their lives the way that they always have.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think that social media gives you a snapshot, which is entirely inaccurate. And is going to be quite a challenge for future historians, potentially, to try to decipher. I remember talking to my mum and dad about my mum and dad were both involved in the fashion industry, both models in London during the 60s and hung out in Carnaby Street and places like that. And I said, well, what were the fashions like? And they said, yeah, well, some people were dressed up in fashions, but pretty much everybody wasn't really. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you, you, if you were dressed in the extremes of fashion they talk about now, you'd have been noticed because you'd been unusual or you're some kind of fashion icon or something or you're on stage. so." our impression of what they were wearing back then is totally changed by the extremes. And I wonder whether in 500 years people are going to be looking back at the emergence of social media as a huge influence on our societies in general and having to sort of disentangle this inaccurate record of our daily lives.
2: Yeah, Um, and that's true throughout history, I suppose, because the records that we have, even from... Classical antiquity is biased by the people who were writing those That's records. I'm
1: true. True.
2: Um, feeling this at the moment because of this book on patriarchy that I'm writing. I'm looking through what ancient Athenian writers were writing, and most of them are men, and a lot of them seem to have huge axes to grind against women. And it's very easy to read that and think, wow, ancient Athens was a real woman-hating place. But actually, all you have to go on is what these people have written, and how do we not know that they were fully exceptions in their time, that it wasn't Mm. that bad for most people? You can never tell. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that social media now you get exposed to these extremes. And in fact, monsters are created out of these extremes. People like Katie Hopkins and others who have really quite objectionable opinions that must be very marginal among most people. And yet you hear about them all the time.
1: Yes, and you get that selection bias as well. You get this sort of concept of false balance where, as you say, we talk about climate change or things like that. And they sort of bring in somebody who's extraordinarily fringe belief is probably believed by a millionth of the population of the planet. And they're put up alongside somebody whose belief is shared by pretty much everybody else. Um, (laughs) And they sort of allow a debate between the two. And I, I always find that a bit weird because clearly the truth doesn't lie in between those two extremes in the slightest. Somebody can be wrong and somebody can be right. That's how science works.
2: Yeah, you're right. It's a very weird phenomenon that you get in the media and particularly when it comes to science reporting. And I've had this happen to myself that a producer will call me up and say, Andrew, we would love you to talk about racism in the sciences, but can we get essentially a racist to debate with you or, to, yes. you know, be on the other side of this?" It? And it's like, I'm a journalist in my books. I actually speak to people, on, you know, at the very margins mm. of ideas, some of whom are racist and fully don't accept my equal humanity. I've done that work so that you don't have to do that work you know that's, you can you can get that perspective in context in a kind of balanced contextual way and balance is not to say this person says this and this person says that but why does this person at the very fringes of this belief believe what they do and how is it that everybody else in mainstream science is trying to move science forward in the face of these people at the fringes hmm. you know that's the kind of context that we need but then You find yourself as a journalist, and this has happened to me a number of times, treated as though you sit on one side of that equation and that that fringe person is a legitimate point of view on the other side. And it's a huge frustration for me. And I do wonder sometimes if the media creates real problems of public engagement and trust in science and also damages our public understanding of science by creating these false equivalents.
1: Because they're almost saying, you know, this person who's studied this for their whole life and has read more than a book about it, <laughs> has written books, their opinion is valid. And this other person who's watched some YouTube videos is also, their opinion is as valid. And it's like, no, those are not equivalent perspectives on the world in the slightest. One of the arguments I've occasionally heard somebody say, it's because a lot of journalists are arts trained. And therefore, if you're arguing over whether a book means X or Y, There isn't actually a truth unless the author can tell you what they were writing about. There's just a a well-argued opinion on both sides and you can get full marks for having diverging opinions as long as you argue the point. Whereas in science, it's not like that. I mean, science does change. That's the great thing about science. But clearly, there are some things that are right and some things are wrong.
2: Yeah, although, I mean, much of my career has been dedicated to asking to what extent can science get get things wrong and why does it? (laughs) that even the expert who's written lots of books on a topic can still be wrong sometimes. And Mm. we have to interrogate when that happens. We can't take their word for it every single time. Mm -hmm. I think the pandemic has been a really good illustration because a lot of myths were created and then debunked over the course of the last year with regards to various aspects of the virus and what can treat it and what can't treat it, what is good and what isn't. And loads of experts have either turned out to be right or turned out to be wrong. But that doesn't mean they weren't all experts and equally credible experts to begin with. Mm. So the question is not, you know, this is a group of people that we can trust and everybody else we can't, and that's why we should always trust them. But have a kind of sceptical hat always. This is what I say to people. Whenever you're reading any kind of scientific information, whether it's in the news or whether it's in a journal, just try and put what you're reading in context, read around it, see what critiques have been made of it, see if there are dissenting opinions within the scientific community around it, and also be prepared for that paper to turn out to be wrong, possibly later on. There's a wonderful website called Retraction Watch, which I recommend to everyone. What they do is they catalogue Papers that have been retracted, scientific papers that have been retracted for whatever reason, and it can be whatever reason, sometimes it's fraud, sometimes it's they got their data wrong, whatever. But it kind of shows you the process of science happening, which is people write things up, they have hypotheses or they publish data, and sometimes it turns out to be correct, sometimes it turns out to be wrong. But there is a process there, and it can take a long time. Race, I think, is a perfect example of science gone wrong eugenics is a perfect example of science gone wrong that here are beliefs that many experts had for a very long time that turned out to be just bias and prejudice and only very slowly are we starting to challenge that and rewrite the books on human difference and what it actually means
1: does it take us a generational change as well because sometimes people grow up with a belief based on what they think of facts but those facts are wrong And as we've talked about before, it's really hard to admit you're wrong. But the next generation coming along, do you you feel that you actually can't educate enough of one generation? You just got to hope that you educate the next one coming through.
2: I think it happens in both ways, because even during the eugenics movement, at the height of the eugenics movement, there were prominent people who dissented from it experts who just didn't share the opinion of the other eugenicists. So what's fascinating for me as someone who looks at these periods of history is not just what was the prevailing orthodoxy, but also what debates and discussions were happening at that time around these issues. The way that I like scientific history to be written is not as the story of individuals or of heroes or greats, but as something that is living within society at a time and that people are interacting with. Scientists are interacting with, but also people are interacting with these ideas, and they're all impacted by each other. So scientists, rather than seeing them as people who kind of sit on high and the knowledge somehow comes from the heavens and (laughs) and that's how they process it, they live like the rest of us in the world, And the questions they ask and the theories they have are fully informed by the world that they're in. That's why they become invested in certain ideas over others. I think this is one of the reasons that eugenics was so popular is because the scientists behind it were invested in this belief that they belong to a superior group of people and they wanted to maintain that.
1: Yes, and that's a very difficult thing to shift from people because you've got to admit to yourself that you aren't a special race, I suppose, um, yeah. which is difficult, but needs to be done, I suppose. Is there a sort of an overriding kind of key theme of eugenics that you think is still very much sort of believed by a lot of people, and it just won't go away as easily as some other things? As we sort of summarise, is there a kind of key idea that's just wrong?
2: There's actually quite a few. So I presented a BBC Four series a couple of years ago with this wonderful disability rights activist, Adam Pearson, on eugenics. And one of the people I interviewed, Jonathan Portis, who's an economist who used to work for the government, and now he's an academic. And he was saying that if you look, for instance, at child welfare, now, bear in mind that Beveridge, who is the architect of the British welfare system, was a eugenicist. So he had eugenic views. <laughs> And that's not to say that welfare isn't a good thing. I'm all in favour of social welfare. But when you look at the child tax credit system, the credit system that we have now, the government, our current government and earlier governments, including labour governments, have sometimes put a cap on how many children you can have before you lose benefits. Now, if you look at that through the context of history, that can very much look like a eugenics tool. You know, we are trying to limit the number of children a poor family can have, because after that we will disincentivize them so much they will be disinclined to have them. And Portis essentially said, you know, how is that not eugenics in action even today? We still have this, I think, in Britain at least, but I see it in other countries as well, this idea that, you know, there's an underclass. This underclass of people who are just naturally not as good as other people. We don't want them to have as many children. You know, why are they outbreeding everybody else? They shouldn't be having kids. They can't look after them. They're just not good enough. And I think in those kind of attitudes, eugenics lives on.
1: Mm. How do we shift that then? Is that education? Do we just have to look at policies? Or will it ever get shifted without being too depressing?
2: (laughs) I do wonder sometimes if our political classes come from a strata of society that have very little experience of poverty and deprivation and when you've grown up in an environment where you don't have very much and the people around you don't have very much you start to understand why the world looks the way it does it's not because they're in any way weaker intellectually or physically than anybody else it's because life just grinds you down, it makes everything harder. I remember when I was at school, I went to a state school, and it was an okay state school. But I remember so much talent was wasted in that school from a lack of ambition for the kids. You know, we're always told to revise down our expectations. And that is how these ideas live on that you shouldn't aim too high. Whereas I've seen for myself, you know, among friends that I know, and now my son goes to a private school, you know, I can see for myself, they are always expected to revise up their expectations for themselves. So it's that, it's saying to children from disadvantaged backgrounds, we expect as much from you as we do from
1: anybody else. Mm. And trying to get them to live up to those expectations and and feel empowered themselves. I mean, not everybody can succeed, but we can all try.
2: Um, yeah, giving them the resources to do it. Mm. The choices that we make are informed by what we think is feasible. If you feel that if you choose a certain career path and your likelihood of doing well in that is less than if you went and became a bank manager, say, or some other stable kind of profession, then you're less likely to choose it if you don't have anything to fall back on. So we need to create those nets for kids that say if you want to become a scientist or if you want to do this we'll make sure that you never have to worry about your finances as you're training to become that person or you never have to worry about looking after your parents or whoever you're caring for at home while you're going through that process and we don't do that at the moment we kind of let people fend for themselves and that's why people partly because society tells them to but partly because this is a choice you're making because you're trying to be sensible for yourself revise down their expectations.
1: If you were going to project us ahead as a society 100 years, what do you think might have changed and what do you think we'll look back on and and think of as as just weird that we lived like that?
2: I don't like to enter into that kind of futurism, (laughs) but I do expect, and I'm saying this as a meat eater myself, that future generations will look back at us and say that it was really barbaric that we ate meat in the way that we eat it, in the way that we farm it. And I'm saying that as someone who has tried to go vegetarian and really can't, (laughs) I feel that I can't. But I do wonder if future generations will judge us for the way that we keep and rear animals.
1: Yeah, I I think you're probably right. There's an awful lot of unnecessary cruelty out there and probably too much meat eating. But yes, I find myself trying to dramatically reduce the amount I eat, Um, but I do like meat. (laughs) Yeah, but it does make me feel quite bad sometimes when I eat it as well. So anyway... That was lovely conversation. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. If people want to find out more about you and what you do, is there any way they can follow you? Or I maybe mean, we talked about the evils of social media, but you know, maybe, maybe it's inappropriate to say that. But is there anything you would like to sort of suggest how they can interact with you?
2: So I'm not on Twitter and Facebook anymore. I haven't been for a couple of years, but um, I do have a website and have a newsletter which goes up very rarely. (laughs) If you are interested in keeping up what I'm doing, then you can do it that way. Type my name into Google; it's very easy to find my website.
1: Fabulous. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Um, I know we only skimmed your areas of expertise there and and, and interest, but thank you very much for uh, for chatting with me.
2: It's been an absolute pleasure.